Oh, I don't know where he's gone. He goes to all sorts of obscure places I've never heard of. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. couple of weeks since my last pod. Uh, I was away at a festival a couple of weeks ago and seemed to have caught an annoying cold while I was there. While it didn't affect anything in my everyday life, it did make it awkward to speak. I uh, kind of sounded like I was speaking through a muted trumpet and my throat didn't like prolonged speech. Eh, who needs a ball gag when you've got a cold? Highly inappropriate introduction there. I'll talk more about the festival next time. Suffice to say that something very big came out of it that most of you now know about. But I want to talk about it when my pod's on a more apt subject, in a way. That's not to say I haven't been resting on my laurels since. Uh, this week I've been at an event known as the World Travel Market, uh, an exhibition hosted a couple of times a year around the world. There's a WTM Asia, World Travel Market Africa, etc. But every year in autumn it comes to London. And this year it was held in the XL Centre in the London Docklands area, a venue so huge it has three stations on the Docklands Light Railway. The world travel market itself, hereafter referred to as WTM because it's much easier to say, is huge. It's basically a marketplace for tourist boards, tour operators, journalists, travel agents and the like to meet up and discuss collaborations with a view to encouraging more tourists to come. It's very much more of a B2B event than a public event, even as a travel writer and podcaster. I tend to avoid the B word in public settings, though others revel in it. I felt a little out of place, although it took place over three days, and Monday is specifically the trade and media, and people like me count as media. The general public come in on the Tuesday and the Wednesday. That said, I'm not entirely sure what the general public would get out of an event like this, other than severe wanderlust. There were two main sections either side of the central aisle. Uh, on one side was the UK, including several regional tourist boards, tour bus companies, stadium tour companies and the like, and Harry Potter, as well as the rest of Europe. Uh, some countries had entire sections. I got lost in the stalls representing different regions of Spain at least twice. And it also includes such places as Namur in Belgium and a couple of representatives from northern Cyprus. Controversially, I went there after eating some traditional food at a stall from the Greek Ionian Islands. On the other side of the aisle... Uh, was the rest of the world divided into Africa, Middle East, Asia and the two American continents. Some countries were surprisingly represented. I got a small wooden colourful bird from Nicaragua stall and there was a strong contingent from Venezuela. Whilst others were conspicuous by their absence, I didn't notice Honduras or Belize and in the European section I didn't see Sweden or Denmark. In addition, I even ended up on TV, sort of. Uzbekistan 24 were interested to know that I'd been there a few years back, so they had me in front of the camera talking about my experiences there. They said it made a change to have an actual independent traveller rather than someone connected to the tourist trade. I spent quite a bit of time courting favour with the African contingent. The lovely lady at the Senegal stall loved, and I mean loved, my business card. She even spoke to me about it when I passed her the next day. It kind of helped the picture was taken in Ghana, so it's relatable. The chap from Mali wanted a selfie with me, normally it'd be the other way around, and I finally managed to speak to Guinea-Bissau after three days. I'd passed this stall several times, but there never seemed to be anybody there. It turns out this was because most of them had had their visas reviewed by the UK government. Uh, a conversation I had later on Twitter suggested this was kind of normal. Indeed, I was told of an official trade event between the UK and Mauritania, to be attended by MPs no less, that ended up falling by the wayside because the Mauritanian delegation had been refused visas. I don't really want to get too political in my podcasts, though everything is political, obviously, but it does feel particularly stupid to have a global event and then, you know, not let people go into it. As an aside, if you want to hear some political thoughts related to travel, check out a podcast called Left Ungagged. There's a chap on there called Thomas Morris, who I may or may not know, and he often talks about travel with a political subtext. A recent pot he did was about water and plastic bottles. 
uh, subject in many people's minds right now, with specific reference to West Africa. Anyway, some of the stalls were bigger and more impressive than others. Many did nothing more than just hand out touristy leaflets, while others had more to offer. A lot of it was food and drink. While some had small amounts of either or both to give away to passing traffic, uh, Hungary had these sweet sugary bread snacks, Kaliningrad gave me vodka, Kazakhstan had cognac, and Wallonia obviously had an entire bar on their stall. Serbia gave me a glass of wine just because I walked past them and said I had a great friend in Belgrade. Others put on special events to showcase their wares. Obviously it was all for marketing purposes, but as mentioned earlier, the Ionian Islands offered lunch snacks on at least two of the days. On the Monday, the stall from the country of Georgia was giving away free glasses of local wine, Georgia being home to some of the oldest evidence of viticulture in the world. I found it slightly too dry for my wine tastes, but it was still good. I'm much more of a beer drinker. It was all, of course, designed to encourage people to do business. Many of my travel blogger, ah, use the B word, friends, had prearranged meetings with companies and tourist boards. I just took the view that I'd see who I could chat with and then maybe communicate officially afterwards once I'd made myself known. Obviously, and especially on Monday, which was full of the stereotypical men in suits, a lot of the business was conducted far beyond the public level. But it was very interesting to see the variety of people there and what they were looking for. I myself had a few great conversations. As someone with a particular niche for the road less travelled, I made myself known to a number of places both known and unknown, from Detroit and Mississippi to Sierra Leone and St Helena. While I'm not outwardly expecting anything concrete to come of it, I'm not yet in a position to make the most of what I can do. And this leads to my last observation. Across all three days there were talks and panel sessions with influential people from business and the wider community about different aspects of travel. I attended a couple... Uh, I missed one I really wanted to go to because I was busy networking with people who were only there on that day. Who am I and what have I done with a real barefoot backpacker? I mean, I was wearing shoes for fuck's sake. As I felt in a professional environment, I probably ought to, even if it's traitorous to my brand and brand image. And 13, 13 people, mark you, said, I didn't recognise you because you're wearing shoes. I didn't even expect to meet 13 people I knew. But anyway, uh, one of these meetings, one of these seminars, was chaired by the influential broadcaster Lisa Nand, and it was on podcasting, and it reinforced in my mind the need to continue and develop with mine, and use it more as my primary focus rather than just a, well, this is fun idea. Overall, I'd go to WTM again, but not until I had something to offer. It was great to get an overview, and I'd been apprehensive beforehand about turning up because I perceived I'd feel out of place, but it turned out really well. I just want to make sure next time that I could go up to people with a specific plan or idea to do business rather than feel like a glorified tourist. True to my style of the roadless travelled, I stayed in a guest house in the borough of Barking rather than in central London. And as a side note, the Weatherspoons pub, fair play to them, is called the Barking Dog. And then on my way back, I passed through the town of Bedford, which feels like it has enough in it to warrant being a future lesser known destination of the week. But not this time. As I spent the morning with a Twitter friend in the village of Woburn Sands, claim to fame, Greg Rutherford, a UK long jumper, and there's a long jump-sized commemoration of his achievements in the village, which I tried to do and it failed enormously. I'm not an athlete. And I spent the afternoon full of admin, as I managed to lose my debit card that morning somewhere on Bedford Embankment, along with my London Oyster card and my Trent Barton Mango card. Careless. I keep them in a card slot in my mobile phone case, but over time that slot has slackened and... They must have fallen out while I was taking a picture or sending a tweet or something. Fortunately, no one had misused my debit card, but I cancelled it anyway and managed to get home with the help of my uncle's credit card. My Easter card had about 15 quid on it, but I'm mostly annoyed by the loss of the mango card. My old workplace had an arrangement with Trent Barton buses, so my card got me on a couple of the most convenient buses for half price. One country that was not represented at World Travel Market was Vanuatu. Vanuatu? Where the fuck is Vanuatu? I recently spent 26 days in Vanuatu, a place I wanted to visit ever since I was pulling my year out in 2014. What attracted me most about it was its volcanoes, specifically the idea of hiking across one of the islands, Ambrum in particular, which is basically made up of two volcanic peaks and not a great deal else, except a few villages scattered along the coast. Spoiler alert, I did, and it was fab. But when I asked people to contribute to this pod with what they knew about Vanuatu, most people replied in a quite similar way to my friend V, who you just heard from. Anna, from Woodby Traveller, says something along the same lines. Um, I'll be completely honest and say that I'm an awful travel blogger because I've never heard of Vanuatu. I couldn't tell you where it is. I couldn't have told you that it was a country. It could be a city. Who knows? As does Sky from Sky Travels, who sees himself as otherwise pretty knowledgeable for an American. 
It's actually kind of funny because I've been studying all the different countries around the world for a few years now as I travel the world, and I've been trying to actually memorize all the different countries, going through each continent, you know, one by one. I can do all of uh, South America, Europe, and most of Asia, and yet now bringing up the subject of Vanuatu, I have never heard of this country. I don't even know if it's a country or a territory or a city. I feel like I, mean, I usually joke and say that Americans don't know the world, and I'm not one of those Americans, and now I feel like I still am. <laughs> the radio vagabond went one further, and because he knew nothing about Vanuatu, invented a whole fake history behind the place. There's a man who needs to start writing fantasy novels. Vanuatu. It's a place in Uruguay, uh, in the mountains, and uh, it's it's really scenic and, and so beautiful. I haven't been there yet, but uh, I hope to go there very, very soon. Am I close? One person who did know something was Larch, the silver nomad. I first heard about Vanuatu in 2014. I was a volunteer for the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, and Vanuatu is actually in the Commonwealth. Recently, I've been trying to go and house sit there. The one house sit that is available on that island, they only want people from Australia and New Zealand. And I am so disappointed about it, because I would love to go to Vanuatu. So I'm looking forward to Ian's podcast. It seems that not many people know much about Vanuatu. So here's a brief background. It's an archipelago made up of about 80 islands. The vast majority are inhabited, though populations are often small. The whole country has only got about 270,000 people in it. It's quite a small country. It's about 12,000 square kilometres, so it's about the same size as Qatar and Montenegro. It's incredibly varied. Beaches, rainforests, mountains, often very close to each other, short hike. It's kind of, you go to Queensland, you go to Kearns in Queensland and go east for about two to three hours by plane. It's kind of there. Bit further on the same way, you get to Fiji. North of Vanuatu is Solomon Islands, and south is Nouvelle Caledonia. It achieved independence in 1980, having been a colony called the New Hebrides, because uh, early explorers felt the islands resembled um, the Hebridean islands off the coast of Scotland. Scotland doesn't have active volcanoes. No one's going to eat you, unless they deep fry you first, I guess. It was a colony of the British and the French at the same time. This almost unique situation, uh, other colonies tended to be split on colonial lines like Togoland or became united after independence like Cameroon, seems to have developed because uh, basically the British were apathetic about the whole thing. They didn't really want to get involved. We colonised them, but the British government didn't appear to be that interested in taking direct control despite the colonials there going, please rule us. And it was only when French missionaries and colonists from the south and the east, uh, New Caledonia's well, as I say, it's the next island chain down, and French Polynesia is not that far to the east, relatively speaking. Uh, they kind of started to arrive, outnumbered the English, and the British government went, hang on a minute. But, of course, by then it was too late. The result was something called the Condominium, a policy of dual control by both colonial powers. And this worked kind of as well as you might expect anything between the British and the French to work. They kind of had different religions, different school systems, different police forces, even different laws. And famously, this includes the rules of the road. The French drive on the right, the British drive on the left, and the colonisers saw no reason why this shouldn't also be the case in the New Hebrides. Fortunately, the roads in the country aren't really designed for fast driving, so I guess it was never much of a problem as it sounds. It's just one of the more examples, outlandish examples, of how the two powers never really work together for the benefit of the country. You know, a bit like divorced parents passively, aggressively fighting over a child. One of the famous things about Vanuatu is its uh, number of languages. It's got over 100 languages spoken, which is, I think, the most in the world. And this is partly because the terrain of each island, although it's quite small, getting across them is quite tricky, so people tended to stay in their little villages. They obviously needed to find a common tongue to facilitate trade, and the whole English-French thing comes in again. Parts of the country speak English, parts of the country speak French. There's no random, it's, it's all, there's no sort of pattern to this, it's all completely random. Uh, but what developed was a language called Bislama. It's a pidgin tongue related to Tokpixin in Papua New Guinea. It's kind of a creole, a trading language, lingua franca, as a means for islands to communicate with each other. It's about 95% based on English, with a few French and local words thrown in, like Bonne Nuit and L.A. Spoken Bejlama is too quick for a non-speaker to pick up immediately, though your ear is drawn by the frequency of English-sounding words. It feels like you should be able to understand it, if only you concentrated. 
written by Schlammer, to my eyes it reads like a bit like a parent talking to a child. Or more concerningly, the sort of speech white man make to Native American in 1950s cowboy movies. Uh, Vanuatu, Blong Yumi, Big Man Yugo, Play Play, You Survey. That kind of thing. It, it's often dismissed by people as, oh, it's just English with a few random longs and blongs thrown in. But it's obviously a bit more structured than that. But blong, by the way, is the possessive. So my leg becomes leg blong me. Literally, the leg belongs to me. In my experience, visitors to Vanuatu seem to come in two very different forms. Uh, money and business comes from Australia and New Zealand. As uh, a close connection between them, many need Vanuatu, the locals, uh, chose to go there for work, and many large businesses in Vanuatu are owned and operated by Australians, who tend to stay in their own resort-oriented ghettos. Independent travellers and backpackers, however, tend to fly in as a side trip from either of those two countries, or from New Caledonia, or come in from sea having hitched a lift by boat or yacht across the South Pacific. I met quite a few of them in Port Villa. Either way, the vast majority of backpackers like me that I met were French, presumably because of the nearness of New Caledonia and French Polynesia. Anyway, as I say, I was on Vanuatu for 26 days, and of the 80-odd islands in the country, I visited five. Uh, Ifate, which is the island with the capital port villa on it, Espiritu Santo, you can tell who colonised this place, uh, the island with the second biggest town called Luganville. It's got a population of 20,000, which makes it smaller than the town I live in, uh, although there's a lot more to see and do in Luganville than Kirkby and Ashfield. And three of the more outlying islands, uh, Ambrim, as I previously mentioned, uh, Malakula in the west, and an island called Gower in the north. Each island's individual. Um, there is a bit of a rival between each other, but there were some aspects of the country that were pretty much uniform across all of them. This, some of this may make me sound like a, a gawping, hairy, middle-class, middle-aged white man. I am a hairy, middle-class, middle-aged white man. I, I don't know what to do about that. I, I'm trying. I'll start with getting around the country. Somewhat surprisingly for an island nation, boats are not that common. Rather, uh, pretty much all inter-island transport takes place by plane. The airports are unlike most airports you'll probably have been to. Until I arrived there, the smallest airport I'd been to was La Rochelle in France. Uh, my memories of it were a chap taking the luggage off the plane in a wheelbarrow. You walk next to him to the terminal building, where in a room with a kind of similar vibe to a sports changing room, you know, sort of plain walls lined with wide flat benches made of slats, puts the luggages on the benches, you pick it up and walk out with it. The main airport on Malakula, at a place called Norsup, is similar, but dispenses with the terminal building. The airports on Gower and Ambrim go further and dispense with the runway. The planes land on grass. You don't really notice this from the plane itself, but that might be something to do with the aeroplanes themselves. See, most of the internal flights are on 19-seater twin-engine jets, whose emergency exit include easing through the cockpit. So you could basically, when you were sitting in the plane, you could see the pilot and co-pilot piloting the plane, which is really interesting for an AV geek. It was also possible to have an aisle and a window seat at the same time. There's no luggage rack, so everything you take on board has to fit under the seat. At the airport, they weigh your hold luggage, and then they weigh you. I have to say, though, that the machines may be somewhat suspect. My reported weight changed by 5 kilograms on two successive flights. Uh, a little tip here, the machine at Norsup seems to be the most friendly. Some of the flights give you a seat reservation, but mostly you just sit where you like. I'd say think of them less as aircraft and more as flying buses. In addition, timetables are flexible. My flight to Gower was full and ready to depart some half hour before the due departure time, so we left. And we arrived in Gower before we were supposed to have left Luganville. In addition, there's a departure tax of 200 Vanuatu Navatu, the local currency. It works out about £1.40 at current rates, and this applies to each journey rather than each flight. So if you're taking a connecting flight, you only play once. It's designed to go into the local economy and possibly contribute to the upkeep of the airports. On arrival, and when I spoke to locals in Luganville about this and they laughed, the first thing I realised was the lack of signposts. I don't just mean road names, making maps quite tricky to use, I mean any kind of signpost at all, to the extent that I often didn't even know the village I was in. I still don't know where I stayed in on Gower, other than it overlooked the airport. I guess it's not terribly important, I mean the locals all know where they are, so most people who go there don't need to know. But as a map and information geek, I had to rely on the names of schools and shops to know where I was. Now, shops. Many villages have nothing more than a local corner shop selling mainly bread and inordinate amounts of tin tuna. One supermarket in Malakula describes itself as Lakatoro Supermarket and consists of five wide aisles, usually six or seven locals congregating around the checkouts, making it hard to tell who works there and who's just a friend, and 
nothing else. The shop was almost completely empty, and seemingly this is always the case. On my visit, I found a small section of one aisle devoted to selling, of all things, plumbing joints, and a couple of shelves of crisps by the checkouts. Nothing else at all. In addition, the islands come to a stop at the weekend. The businesses close anyway, and most of the shops shut around lunchtime on the Saturday and don't reopen till the Monday. At a push, there'll be somewhere open you can buy water from, but don't expect to do any kind of weekly shopping. I'd like to say there's a religious reason to this, because religion is strong here, and I'll come on to that shortly. But in truth, I suspect it's kind of an example of the laid-back island lifestyle people have seemed to have adopted across Vanuatu that they're quite willingly open to admit. The local people talk of island time, which is similar to the West African concept of time. Think of Hakuna Matata, indeed. Things will happen, you will get to your destination, the tour guide will come, don't worry about the when, just relax and let things be. It's best not to make time-dependent plans here. Take a book, sit and enjoy the scenery, and just let life take you where it's going. And to be fair, it's bloody good scenery. This laid-back approach extends to driving. I don't mean a lax approach to driving. Indeed, I was told in Malakulu of a punitive anti-drink drive law that had recently come into force that fined drivers upwards of 300,000 vartu, or two grand, if they're caught drinking and driving. Rather, what I mean is that if you're walking down the road in, say, Malakula, Every single car that passes you will honk their horn and wave at you. People piled onto the backs of 4x4 trucks will all shout their greetings as you pass by. And the reverse is true. The people walking on or working at the roadside will all wave back, even to other pedestrians. A few years ago, Vanuatu was voted the world's happiest country. I'm not quite sure what they did to deserve that in terms of, I don't know how you measure it, but there we go. Uh, And this is one example as to why. It certainly feels that everyone is friendly and open, but not creepily so. It's a genuine demeanour, and not one designed to lure cash out of you. The drivers will offer you lifts, for the right price of course. This is one place where hitchhiking is both incredibly easy, yet technically doesn't exist, as the line between minibus, taxi and private vehicle is quite vague uh, if they pass you. But there's none of this Southeast Asian touting that goes on. A friendly wave and a little chat, and they're on the way with no pressure or hard feelings. It's even not unknown for locals to offer you small pieces of fruit if you chat with them a little. Now, religion. While not as evangelical as West Africa, it certainly has quite a hold on the people. Indeed, in my hostel in Port Villa, I could hear one preacher, Seventh-day Adventist, I believe, from a couple of blocks away from over an hour on his microphone. In Ambrim, I discussed this with another backpacker as he stumbled upon a missionary post and concluded that while the country was full of churches and even missionaries, Seventh-day Adventists, but also Pentecostalists, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., they're all represented, the task appeared not to be convert people to Christianity, rather their aim seemed to be convert people from one Christian domination to another. Uh, I actually went to a church service, and that was on the island of Gower, Pentecostalist for the record. It was a small wooden building in a short walk off the main road, with about six or seven small rows of benches inside, split in the middle by an aisle. The end of an aisle was a small open space, behind which was a raised area with a rostrum. The walls of the church were posted with English-language hymn scores, and I mention the language because although the service itself was Bishlama, the hymns, no church organ by the way, the music was provided by a guitarist in the congregation, was sung in English. The service was already in full swing when we arrived, and we had to excuse our way to the only space available, on the very front row. Hashtag awkward. The preacher was about as stereotypical as it gets, fully suited up, smart hair, quite young. Uh, and in between hymns, he led the service with readings and sermonising. Animated voice preaching hellfire and damnation. Well, presumably, anyway, it was in Bishlama. Couldn't understand the word of it. There was an older chap sat sideways to us on the edge of the room. When the preacher stepped down, he pretty much high-fived this other man, who then walked up to the rostrum and started preaching himself. That this happened twice more may give you some indication as to how long the ceremony was. Towards the end, the preachers invited anyone to come forward into the open space in front of the rostrum if they needed some words of encouragement in life. Most of the assembled did, and whatever the preachers were whispering into their ears made the people quite emotional and even start crying. At the very end of the service, the preacher at the time saying words to the effect, as far as I understood them, of, well, it's midday now, as much as we'd like to carry on, we know you have to get back to make lunch. We all shook hands with each other and wished each other a happy day and good luck. Everyone. Hands of all sizes were flying everywhere as people headed to the exit. It's probably designed to promote unity of spirit, but all this happy, clappy stuff makes me ick a little bit, if we're being honest. And this was midday. I'd been there for two hours. Many of the congregation had presumably been there from the start, so about three hours-ish. Also, I noticed that almost everyone in the church was either female or a child. There were very few adult men present, apart from the two preachers and the guitarist and myself. Don't quite know why. What else? Oh yeah, standard accommodation here isn't hotels or hostels. It's what they call bungalows. 
which I guess is a technically accurate term. They're single storey, often single room, although some will have an attached bathroom with shower, sink and toilet. Detached properties made up a combination of concrete, wood, plasterboard, bamboo and woven palm leaf, usually with a thatched roof. They'll be a couple of these next to the owner's cottage who'll look after you during the stay and may provide home-cooked meals. This is not a place for mod cons or the trappings of privileged Western society. Don't come here expecting to be pampered in wonderful luxury. None of this matters to me, but it may matter to some people, so I'm going to mention it so you can set your expectations. Firstly, there's no internet access. Ooh. If Wi-Fi exists anywhere, I didn't have it, but some of the bungalows do, it's either so slow as to be unusable, or it's broken. There is, allegedly, for instance, an internet cafe in Lakatoro, and there are some scattered around in bigger places like uh, Luganville and Port Villa. But other than that, you're kind of on your own. If communication is important to you, then maybe get a local SIM card before you arrive in the outlying islands, but even then be aware there's often no phone signal in some of the villages. I didn't see many fridges. I'm not convinced I ever saw a freezer. This means, of course, that everything you eat will either in the positive be very fresh, or in the negative be tinned, as you can tell from the shops. Local fresh food tends to revolve around either rice or yam. Lots of yam. You will need to like yam. Uh, with some vegetable, often lettuce and onion, coconut and chicken or beef. Surprisingly for an island nation, fish isn't as common as you'd expect. Locals will often catch it for themselves, but it's rare to see it on offer to the general public. I did have coconut crab on Gower, which is seen as a bit of a delicacy further south. Small markets abound if you fancy mainly coconut, to be honest. Otherwise, even cooking for yourself is likely to be of the bland tuna stroke dried noodles variety. You could cook for yourself what the locals would eat, but it's not much more expensive to have someone do it for you anyway, especially if you may not be able to store the food you make easily. Probably best just eat where you stay, at least outside Port Villa and Luganville. There's not much pork, though. This isn't for religious reasons, more for cultural ones. The pig is seen as a very important and valuable creature. A pig's tusk is even on the national flag. Whenever there was some big event in a village, say a new chief being coronated, or an important marriage, or a celebration of a recent victory... There was a big celebration and a feast. The worth of the village, or of the person marrying, or of the new chief standing in the tribe, was measured in the number of pigs that they could source for the celebration. Indeed, it wasn't unknown for some villages to suffer what might now be called an economic depression and near bankruptcy because they put so much resource into buying and killing pigs rather than for everyday affairs. Pig tusks were used as jewellery and status symbols, but they had to be naturally grown in a certain way, which generally wasn't much good for the pig. The upper canine teeth were removed so the tusks had room to grow naturally. They tended to curl inwards back inside the jaw to create a kind of loop effect. Really prestigious chiefs wore tusks that had been allowed to curl twice through the jawline. Needless to say, waiting for this to happen was an arduous task, not least because having fewer and warped tusks like this meant the pigs had to be fed by hand. One of the most typical foods on the islands is something called lap-lap. It's usually made from yam. It's made by first peeling the yam then grating it until it turns into a mushy substance. This is then mixed with a little water or coconut milk and fed into bamboo tubes which are laid on an open fire. When the bamboo turns brown, which takes about 10 minutes, the lap-lap is cooked. The bamboo tube is cooked open, revealing, in this particular case, a substance with the colour and texture of raw sausage meat, soft and reddish. This is either cut into small pieces and dipped in coconut milk as a snack, or rendered whole around a puddle of coconut milk filled with prawns or chicken, and bits pulled off and eaten like bread. Washing clothes is a manual activity, using two buckets, a length of wood, a scrubbing brush, and a large amount of elbow grease, often, as I found on Ambrim, with cold water. I did some washing at my friend's house in Australia afterwards, and one of my shirts took two washes and an overnight soak to get nicely clean, and she's still complaining about the amount of volcanic dust that came out of her washing machine's filter. Still, on an island where time is vague, and where you're never really rushed to do anything, it's quite a fun way to spend an hour in the morning, knowing that your clothes hanging out to dry in the sunshine will be dry by, mm, just after lunch really. And life starts at sunrise and dies at sunset. This close to the equator, the days are a similar length all year round. This means it's generally light around 6am and dark by 6pm, give or take an hour. Since there are almost no streetlights, and since village life is also quite family-based, certainly in the islands, there's very little to do in the evening except gaze upwards at the stars and to remark to yourself that it's been quite a while since you last saw the Milky Way. Electricity is often provided by solar energy and may only be available in the evenings for a couple of hours. Running water, cold, remember, forget about hot baths, may or may not be available all the time. Otherwise, bucket shower. 
and you'll need to ask about drinking water. On that subject, in one village, or somewhere in Malakula, I had the following conversation. Do you have a tap? Yes. Is the water from it safe to drink? Well, we drink it. You can almost visualise the dismissive shrug that that comment deserves to be accompanied with. Turns out that in this particular village, the water comes from one of the local mountain streams nearby. Given that I'd filled my water bottle earlier that day from a series of cascades in one of those same mountain streams, it seemed fairly safe to drink from the tap too. If memory serves, and I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong, two of the main things to remember from drinking from streams are 1. Drink water that's rushing, not water that's standing still or burly flowing, and 2. Always drink upstream of cows. On Ambrim, due to its volcanic nature and lack of rivers, the water is collected from acidic rainfall, and the villagers actively say, we're used to it, you're not, drink bottled water. Much of my time on the islands was spent hiking. Certainly when I was first looking at places to visit in the area, Vanuatu, especially the island of Malakula, jumped out at me as being a great place to go exploring. Great trails through rainforests, over hills coupled with uh, a lovely introduction to the local culture and scenery. The typical Vanuatan trails go through mainly jungle, past villages and over hills that, while not high, when you've been hiking for five hours with an eight kilogram backpack, feel much steeper than they probably are. They are roughly one human wide, weave about all over the place, and seem to exist purely because the occasional local villager had an idea to take naive tourists on a trail through the bushland. And of course these villagers carry machetes, so they can hike through the undergrowth clearing the way, but also to make it easier to open up fallen coconuts for drinking. As an aside, you may be interested to learn the average local hikes in flip-flops or even barefoot. Even I was wearing walking shoes on most of the tracks. That was more because I wasn't sure what the trail would be like. Turns out, mainly dead leaf, twig, tree root and the occasional stone. So maybe next time. The villages all tend to look the same. Uh, it's wooden huts with thatched palm leaf roofs with woven leaf interiors. A series of wooden benches near a central tree that are used mainly by the women folk to watch their children from. A small church. A separate, gender-neutral, natch, toilet cabin situated 40 to 50 metres away from the main village centre, often slightly down a hill. It goes without saying facilities are what you might call basic. Oh, and cockerels and chickens. Lots of them. Which leads to another observation that you probably all know, but I, as an urbanite, did not. See, it may be true in the movies, but cockerels do not crow with the dawn. You cannot use them to wake up with. As far as I can tell, they crow for whatever reason they like, whenever they like. 3pm, cock-a-doodle-doo. 3am, cock-a-freaking-doodle-doo. They cock the way dogs bark, seemingly often through boredom, or because another crock is crowing, or because they think they may have heard an interesting noise 50 kilometres away and want to check. Which is nice when you're lying on a mattress in one of the huts at 3am, having a nice dream about earthquakes or something, and there's a cockerel directly outside your hut who's decided he's had enough rest and is now bored. Each village also has its selection of dogs, which seem to serve more as motion-activated alarms rather than actual guard dogs. We walked through a few villages to the sound of dogs barking at us, but not seemingly inclined to do anything about it, except the ones that chased the truck as we drove through in generic cartoon tropery. On one trek, in Malakula actually, the guide's dog, that's guide's dog, not guide dog, followed us all the way for seemingly no reason other than it could. It only got in the way a couple of times. It was hiking with culture and history that drew me towards the island of Malakula particularly. Several of Vanuatu's islands, most notably Espiritu Santo, are fabulous for diving. As a non-swimmer, a fact that one of my close Twitter friends, Laura Lundell, is tasked to change in the new year, and I'm mentioning this for accountability reasons, that sort of thing never interested me. But give me a hilly trail through a rainforest, and I'm there. Malakula is the second largest island in Vanuatu, noted in culture for two things, penis sheaths and eating people. No. This isn't something you'd find on Red Tube or FetLife. Rather, this is literal. Malakula is one of those South Pacific islands noted for a history of cannibalism, though note here they mainly ate each other rather than passing foreigners. Essentially, the island had two cultures, the big numbers and the small numbers. Small meaning small. The number is the name given to the ornamental and spiritual sheath worn over the penis by the male members, stop it, of the tribe. Those in big numbers tribes wore big ones, while those in small numbers you get the idea. And they had a big rivalry, which often resulted in tribal conflict. Whereas in most of the world, the losers would be killed on sight or taken and sold as slaves, here on Malakula they were taken back to the village as captives, any jewellery taken from them, and then cooked or eaten. 
There's a stereotype that South Pacific cannibals ate foreigners, missionaries in particular, but also explorers. And while this is very true, and in an early example of colonially racist behaviour, when the first Western missionary was killed and eaten, the church leaders decided to send more expendable missionaries from Samoa rather than more Westerners, under the pretext of, well, they might listen to someone more like them, the majority of cannibalism was intertribal rather than international. Cannibalism was still being practised within living memory. Indeed, the guide that took me to the, one of the waterfalls, Losinwai, in the west of Malakula, claimed to be 80 years old and that his father had been a cannibal. He had, however, never eaten human, thus could not confirm the long-held belief that we taste like pig. And to be fair, he'd probably never eaten pig anyway, given they're probably more valuable than humans on Malakula. Now, another island in Vanuatu is the island of Ambrim, and as mentioned earlier, this is kind of why I went to Vanuatu in the first place, mainly for the volcanoes. Because while there are more accessible and spectacular volcanoes, even in Vanuatu, and I'm thinking of Mount Yasur on Tanner Island here, which is that one that everyone posts about on Instagram, where you can basically drive up to in 200 metres of the crater and it all exploding, I wanted a more spectacular hike. Plus, the thought of being able to camp overnight in the volcanic hinterland definitely appealed. It's not terribly big, the island, uh, about 680 square kilometres or slightly larger than the fake former UK county of Merseyside and it's dominated by not one but two volcanoes in the centre. Mount Benbow lies slightly further to the west than Mount Marham. These by the way are active volcanoes. The last eruption was an ongoing one from Mount Marham throughout much of the early 2000s and indeed they're considered amongst the most active volcanoes in the world and constantly monitored. Getting to them is a bit of an effort. You've got a couple of hours 4 by 4 ride down the coast from the small village of Craig Cove, where you generally arrive on Ambrim, to the smaller village of Port Vato, then a considerable hike along an old river or lava bed. Uh, it took me about 2 hours 40, your timage may vary. It's quite a rocky path. I managed to slip off after 10 minutes and go crewing a couple of metres down a slope. Cue much embarrassment on my part, the only lasting damage being a sore bottom lower back that caused me to be a bit more careful with my hikings later, and my pride. Then you've got a long uphill drag along narrow footpaths through the jungle which dominate the second section to the camps on the ash plain. The ash plain itself is huge. It's about 100 square kilometres, relatively flat and great contrast to the hilly jungles around the coast. The main feature is dried tracks of lava flows from previous eruptions. The ash itself is black, obviously, and very soft almost like the fine black sand seen on many of the beaches across the country. It's barefoot friendly, slightly warm to the smooth to the footstep. Apart from the occasional hardy bush and weed, the whole area feels very dead. Certainly it's very quiet. There are distant birds that can be heard in the jungles below, but apart from the wind, pretty much you yourself make the only sounds. Although obviously affected by every volcanic eruption from both volcanoes, it's believed the ash plain itself was defined by one of the largest volcanic eruptions in recorded history about 2,000 years ago. Now I stayed two nights in the campsite just off the ash plain. It's in a little cutting in the jungle where the path across the island flattens out. We're talking very basic facilities here. There's a wooden framework that defines the social dining area and pretty much everything else has to be brought up from the coastal villages. And that includes your water, your food, your tents. There's pretty much no facilities at all on site. There's a drop toilet in a cabin a short walk into the trees. Otherwise, you go in the bush. Food, pretty much exactly what you'd have expected. Hot water to drink, dried noodles or rice to eat. As a solo traveller, I kind of felt a bit lonely. And this is partly due to the larger than I would have expected number of local guides and hangers-on lurking around the site. I had one guide. All speaking Bijlama or French to each other. But they did surprisingly head off to bed quite early, so it wasn't something that kept me worrying all evening. It's an hour or two's trek to the volcanoes from the camp. Mount Bembo is slightly harder to reach, involving far more climbing and descending, including a steep path to a ridge high above the crater, which can't be any more than a metre wide, and has sharp drops to either side. On the way down, I have issues with hills and I have issues going downhill and I ended up having to hold the guide's hand much to my chagrin and look basically just staring intently at my feet. Mount Marum is slightly further but less stressful to reach although the walk does pass through areas on a plain steeped in volcanic gases. I was even supplied with a gas mask that made me look like one of the minions in Blake 7. Look it up if you're not old enough. Both volcanoes have visible lava pools which makes them unusual amongst world volcanoes. There's not many where you can peer directly into the lakes of hell. 
The crater at Marum is pretty huge and there's a lot of steam coming off it. But if you stand in the right place, you can get a clear view of the lava pool. Otherwise, it's a case of wandering around the dead rocky rim and looking out over the sheer cliffs below. It does feel quite weird to know you're so close to something so powerful and so deadly, even though the lava pool itself is small. Just that it's there at all makes it feel so impressive and overawing. The majority of people hike up and down the same way from Port Vato. Indeed, some just come for a day trip, though I think that would make a very tiring adventure. And there's something quite mystical about being on the ash plain at night and looking out over the volcanoes, especially if they're on fire. I chose to hike across the island to the village of Endu on the eastern side. The trek down from the campsite to the sea is longer than the trek up. It took me three and three quarter hours. My guide said most white people take almost six. But the first half of it is over the vast expanse of the ash plain, so relatively flat and quick. That said, the relief on reaching the ocean was palpable, not least because by this stage it finally ran out of water. From here, it's another long 4x4 transfer down bumpy roads to the local airport Ulai. It's served by only two flights a week, one in either direction between Portoville and Luganville, which goes a particularly uh, long and island-hopping way. On the way to and from Crate Cove, the plane flies over the whole island in around nine minutes, uh, and somewhat closer to the volcanoes than you might expect. One of the best reasons to do the hike across the island is so you can take this flight and get a bird's eye view of the volcanoes that in other parts of the world would require an expensive helicopter charter. Just for the record, I was flying westwards towards Craig Cove and sat on the right-hand side of the plane. I don't know if this route that they take is the same all the time, but serendipitously this got me the best views. The other island I visited was Gower, and it's much less written about. The Lonely Planet Guide gives it only a couple of paragraphs. It's a very different sort of island to Ambrim, being very green and lush. It's also different to the more populous islands in the south, which is clear from the moment you land on its grass runway right next to the coast. When there are no planes due, it gets maybe four a week. It's basically a park. Everyone uses it as a footpath to the beaches, which are quite rocky, but the locals use them for barbecues and bonfires. And there's a couple of villages on the far side of the runway, but also the local children play football on it. Gower is most noted for its water music, a traditional form of music and dance practised exclusively by women on the northern islands, but it's especially noted on Gower. Some villagers have taken to performing it for tourists in special shows in Luganville and even Port Villa so that people who can't get out to Gower can see it. But of course it's not the same as the women on Gower told me. Indeed, it's not something that exists purely for tourists. They see it more as a sport and there are regular competitions between the villagers on Gower to see which has the best water music dance troupe. They start practising from a young age, pretty much once they can swim, to be honest, and they practise about two, three times a week. I found it quite unusual and probably wasn't what I would have expected had I had expectations. By using primarily their hands, they beat the water in a rhythm with such force and technique that the water itself doesn't just make a noise, it makes a particular melodic sound. They perform usually in a line of six or seven people, so that with each of them doing the same, the water really does make music. From a distance, it looks like the splashing should really hurt, but apparently it doesn't. The majority of the performers um, doing the splashing provide the instrumentation, and then a couple of the others do the dance. Some of the dances are symbolic of village life, cooking, fishing, etc., while others represent the animals that provide support to the villagers. One such dance commemorates the dolphin, for instance, and has one of the women mimicking it in both movement and call. Gower was also the site of my first volcano, a nice introduction to my later adventures on Ambrim. I'd never climbed one before, and indeed I'd only kind of vaguely see one in the distance, which was Mount Vesuvius for the record, and it was covered in cloud most of the time. Gower's volcano, which is called Mount Ganat, sits pretty much in the centre of the island, and is almost completely surrounded by a lake called Lake Letas, which the locals claim is the largest freshwater lake in the South Pacific, 19 square kilometres. Mount Garrett is also geologically active. Indeed, it erupted as recently as 2010, causing villages on the west side of the island to be evacuated. The locals returned after about a year. The volcano is around 700 metres tall. The lake itself is 420 metres above sea level, but it does mean that it's a bit of a steep trek to the summit after crossing the lake. It's possible to do the trek from the villages on the northeast coast to the summit and back in a day, but it would be a bloody long trek. It's about two to three hours through reasonably dense foliage to even get to the lake. I overnighted at the lakeside in a small, well, I call it a campsite, but it's a series of little huts with a bed inside. It's glamping, except without electricity or running water. Getting across the lake was done in a canoe, with my guide paddling at one end and my campsite owner, who owns the canoe, paddling the other. Well, I say paddling. 
Just before I got in, the campsite owner uttered the immortal words, the canoe has a small hole, you'd better take your boots off. The ride over the lake to the island took about 40 minutes, and every so often the campsite owner would be emptying the canoe of water with a bucket rather than pushing it forward. Yep, we were paddling rather than paddling. The top of the mountain has several craters. Most of them haven't erupted for a while and are covered in mud, stones and green moss. But the desolate landscape gives an eeriness to the place that no amount of greenery can challenge. From the crater that is active, there's a constant emitting of steam that means even on dry days, the mountain is usually seen with cloud around it. Indeed, my guides told me that quite often they can't make it to the mountain at all because of the visibility and conditions. As it was my first volcano, it was always going to feel a bit weird up there. Conditions meant we couldn't get a good view of the active crater. At one point, we could barely see a foot in front of us due to the steam cloud, which was a little disappointing, but it was certainly good to be up there. It also didn't smell as badly as I'd expected either, just the occasional whiff of sulphur. A month or so earlier, I'd been walking around the sulphur flats near Rotorua in New Zealand, and that was more icky than this. One of the outflows from Lake Letas is a river that, not far from the lake itself towards the east, drops down what locals say is the largest waterfall in the South Pacific. The residents of Gower are quite proud of their island, it seems, and big it up at every possible opportunity. The waterfall is called Siri Waterfall. As far as I know, there are no lawsuits pending and the biggest drop is around 120 metres. It's quite common for people to do the lake, the volcano and the waterfall in one big three-day looping hike, but I chose to split it up and do the waterfall separately. just felt easier logistically. Um, it was quite similar to the treks on Malakula, but it did involve crossing a small river on an ornate but very rickety-looking bridge, and then a few minutes later by a series of dodgy wooden planks. Then, towards the end, near the waterfall itself, there's a section of path that's vertical, traversed by very thin ladder-like steps dug into a tree trunk. It's not for the faint-hearted, and certainly a few years ago, I'd have probably refused. The waterfall itself is pretty powerful. There's places you can stand, at still some distance from the drop, where the amount of cold spray is immense. Bear in mind it was a really hot and sweaty day when I did the trek. After standing by the river for only a few seconds, I was cold and drenched, and it was almost impossible to look at the falls, never mind speak, because the water and the noise were so powerful. It was definitely much needed. Near the large Siri waterfall is another much smaller waterfall that you can get really close up and personal with. In addition, this fall is where some of the fresher water goes, so it's a good place to fill up your water bottles. Between the two is a small picnic site where you can watch the Siri Falls from a safe distance, and it's lovely just being in the forest in the middle of it all, away from civilization. The final thing I want to say about Vanuatu is the substance known as kava. This is not in any way related to the French sparkling wine of the same pronunciation, but rather it's a drink performing the same task as beer traditionally was in Western society, in that it's drunk in bars, almost exclusively by men, at the end of the working day, and it's one which changes your mood as you drink it. It's popular across Melanesia, but Vanuatu Carver, and particularly that from the island of Pentecost, is generally considered the best, and indeed people on Fiji import it rather than drinking their own. As you'll see, best is a subjective term, least worst might be closer to the mark, but of course, as always, your mileage may vary. So the basics. Kava is made from the roots of a plant, specifically a plant known by the technical name of Piper mythsiticum, a phrase that was translated from uh, intoxicating pepper. My research reveals this isn't just a phrase, it, it actually is in the same genus as peppercorns, though as the name implies, and as we shall see later, I'm not exactly going to grind any part of this plant and use it in one of my curries. It's native to the Pacific Island area. It grows best in areas with high rainfall, high humidity and temperatures in the high 20s degrees Celsius and is culturally one of the most important plants in the region. Though on Vanuatu, the drinking of kava is seen more as a casual social event than on islands like Samoa, where it's much more ritualised. The drink itself is made in highly sterile laboratory conditions. Traditionally, the root is chewed into a paste, spat out, mixed with a little water, then filtered through an old sock or sack before cold water is added and the resulting concoction is drunk. These days, it's deemed more efficient to pound the root with a mortal and pestle, but apparently this changes the taste a little. It's alleged that Christian missionaries banned the consumption of kava last century, not for its effects, but because they perceived its production method to be um, dubious. Although essentially a homebrew drink, kava is sold in kava bars. Traditionally, these were village meeting places called nakmal, where important business would take place. But nowadays they're much less grand, sometimes buildings that look like long cottages, but are often merely two walls and a roof, a simple shelter from most of the elements. 
Every village will have at least one, and often more. My solitary experience with Carver was at one of the three or four bars in a village in West Ambrim that we passed on the way back from the shops at a local harbour near Craig Cove. Like a traditional British pub, locals will tend to favour one over others and have a regular bar, rather than go on a bar crawl. Though to be honest, Carver is Carver, and it's not like serving it differently will change the taste much, so the only reason to bar hop would be for the social rather than the tasting experience. Carver is sold in two sizes, sometimes referred to as half shell and full shell. At the bar we went to, a half shell is 50 vatu and a full shell is 100 vatu. I wouldn't be able to tell you how much liquid is in either measurement, but my half shell filled maybe a quarter of the small bowl I was given. I'd gone with another backpacker I'd met at the bungalow, a solo female traveller from France called Céline, who had had Carver once before herself on the island of Pella, and she wasn't that keen on it, but had agreed with me that I ought to try it. First impressions are not good. Some people have commented that it looks a bit like muddy water, or possibly dishwater. To me, it looked a little like old coffee, like someone had had a mug of coffee but left a bit at the bottom which had gone cold and stale. It's kind of like a brown colour, but not cocoa brown, more like muddy pond brown. It moves around the bowl like water, so it's not a thick textured drink. It doesn't smell of water though, rather it has a slightly earthy aroma, with notes of twig and moss. It tastes like it smells. Actually, let me be a bit more evocative. While in West Ambrim, I stayed for the best part of two days in a small complex of bungalows in the woodland. There's a series of forest trails around it that take you to the coral beach, the airport, a church ministry, and through a couple of small villages. These trays aren't always clear, but rather littered with dead leaves, tree roots, black volcanic soil and ash, and the occasional twig. Imagine distilling each bare footstep I made, pressing down on that trail, squashing all of it underfoot, putting the remnants in a bowl mixed with a little water. That, that is what carver tastes like. The thing is, everyone knows this. Even those who make it know that it tastes pretty foul, and yet people will still drink it. They will go back and request more full shells, and maybe have five or more in an evening. The best way to drink it seems to be to let it stay in the mouth as little time as possible, sip it and swallow immediately, or if you're brave enough, just down the whole thing in one. So why drink it at all? Well, people don't drink it for the taste, which is true, but for the after effects. These are strongest on an empty stomach, which is why carver bars tend to open mid to late afternoon, before the evening meal, just before it gets dark. Even as little as a half shell develops a couple of the effects. Your lips and mouth go a bit tingly and slightly numb, in the same way, I believe, as the toxin in Japanese blowfish, while your throat gets a slightly warm and possibly little sickly feeling. But if you have several full shells, the carver acts as a kind of relaxant, a sedative. It's not unknown for people to take a couple of shells and spend the next hour or so staring distantly at the horizon, literally contemplating the infinite. It's not a drink to get too violent on, that's the way many Brits drink beer. It's not even a substance to feel mellow and relaxed with like marijuana. Rather, it's a more sociable form of classic 90s party drug ketamine. Vanuatan's Special K, maybe. It's not the worst drink I've ever had. Tequila, dandelion and burdock, Dr Pepper. But even I would sooner have Vanuatan lager. And that's saying something. So, with all this talk of Vanuatu... There will be no lesser-known destination of the week this week, as, let's face it, pretty much the whole episode has been full of them. Rather, I'm going to do something unusual. Not long after I visited Vanuatu, and I'd love to say it was because of me, but let's face it, it really wasn't, my Twitter travel blogger friends at RTW Reset, Peter and Rachel, also visited Vanuatu, mainly a small island called Uripeve, which is just off the coast of Malakula. And they recorded me their thoughts and findings on this country, too. Hey, Ian. Thanks for having us on your podcast. Since you've got two of us here, we'll try not to talk over each other too much. Hey, Ian. Uh, so I guess I'll start with uh, initial research. Um, we didn't even know about Vanuatu at all. We initially were actually thinking of Fiji as far as that area of the, uh, the world. And uh, came across Vanuatu, I think, talking to friends of ours who live in Australia and New Zealand, who had traveled that area before, and they, they were like, no, 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 you need to go to Vanuatu instead of Fiji. So the initial research, though, was kind of more of the, the usual tourist route of people that go to Vanuatu. Uh, but then when we were in the midst of our trip in Australia, and we were on the Great Ocean Road, and we were a bit underwhelmed by the Great Ocean Road, and we were trying to, we were thinking to ourselves, we wanted to find 
little more off the beaten path type places to go. That, so then we came up with the idea of trying to find some place on Vanuatu that was a little less, a little more remote, a little less common to uh, to visit. So we started doing some online research and social media stalking, and uh, learned about the island of Urupiv. Yeah, and that's that's when we uh, we actually found a, a U.S. Peace Corps worker volunteer that stationed in Urupiv, and and she really helped us out a lot as far as getting there. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of information out there uh, as far as you know how to get there, and and you know the whole process of getting there was you know was challenging. Yeah, so we ended up splitting the majority of our time in Vanuatu between uh, the island of Santo and Urupiv. We spent a little bit of time on Malakula and a little bit of, ta- of time on Afate and Port Vila. Uh, but most of our experience really is, is based on Santo and, and Urupiv. Yeah. So like Rachel was saying, Urupiv is a pretty unique place. There's no electricity. There's no running water. Like 700 700 residents? people. Yeah. You can walk around it in an hour and a half. There's one accommodation, and it's a bit of a challenge at first to, to find out information about it. So having that volunteer that was located there really helped out. Mm-hmm. A lot. So that was quite different than Santo. Santo was... Where we started. Where we started was, you know, very tourist-based. Um, I mean, there were just... Uh, immediately, there were um, uh, tours available as far as going to the blue holes and the beaches and snorkeling. And, you know, just... It was designed to be that way. And yeah, there's resorts really a, and... an established tourism industry there. And you can you could tell it was there. You could You could feel it. I mean, in terms of the restaurants and, like you were saying... With the tour guides and being able to rent a car or a scooter and drive around the island it was very, very, very well established and very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Versus Urupiv, which having one accommodation and they really hardly ever have tourists there, even though they want tourism. Um, but a lot of people don't ever take the boat ride from Malakula over to Urupiv. And so when you're there, it's much more of you just happen to be there while the community is doing its day to day. Right. Like we were there and, you know, there was a, uh, some ceremonies that happened. We saw the traditional dance. Um, we saw communities get together and, and the ceremony having lap lap together. Yeah. And it was you because know. they were opening a water desalination clinic, uh, desalination facility there. And so there, it was a big community, community event that brought everybody to, uh, together. So whether we were there or not, this was going to happen mm-hmm. anyway. So it was really neat to be in an environment like that versus, say, a more touristy area where um, that stuff may happen on its own, but it's more likely it's just there because the tourists are asking for yeah. participation. And even like, like so like, you know, in, in Vanuatu, uh, drinking kava is very, is, is typical and uh, it's no different on the island of Urupiv. And so... You know, pretty much every night that they make kava and they have that. And so we happened to go at the time they were making it, saw how they made it. I was able to help them filter it. And that's something that we just happened to walk up on it. Whether we were there or not, nothing was, that wasn't going to be any different. Where, you know, like you were saying, if you go to a tourist-based place, they'll probably have events built around kava and making it and trying it. That's really more tourist, tourist-based tourist than yeah. uh, than not. And then um, Afate, you know, that's just, that's even more so, you know, from what we saw in Port Villa, you know, it's, it's um, even bigger, you know. Yeah. It's, One uh, of the Peace Corps volunteers described Port Villa to us as kind of like a, a South American city, like a small city in South America. We haven't been to South America yet, so we can't tell you if that's accurate or not. But <laughs> we, it was actually, because we had stayed at Urupi for 12 days, then went to Afate, to the city of Port Villa, to fly out. And the difference between the two is jarring. Um, it was really... It was like going from the countryside to New York City, in it, a way. It was just... It was, it was suddenly being... Jarring. Yeah, going from no cars and walking everywhere to being in vehicles and traffic and hearing horns. It really was different. Within an hour's time. Within an hour's time. So, you know, I think the experience somebody has on Vanuatu is going to be very dependent on what islands they go to. Even things like, so we saw, as Rachel mentioned, a custom dance, which is a traditional dance. That's not typically done even on Urupiv anymore, but there are certain islands, even uh, certain areas in Malakula and Tana, where custom and custom dances are still pretty strong. And so you can see more, more custom ceremony. So depending on what island you go to, you might get more of that than somebody who 
goes to Santo or, you know, Urupiv. Right. I guess it just depends on what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can find in Vanuatu, you can find find five-star resorts and you can find, you know, single huts on an island with 700 people. (laughs) So it all just depends on what you want. But I think that's really a neat thing about Vanuatu is all those different uh, aspects of it. Well, that's just about it for this week. Next time I'll almost certainly be doing an episode on the great outdoors and telling you about a rather odd plan I have for next year. Until then, have a good week, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.